Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their family. Today on the show, I have Mark Spicer. Thanks for being here, man. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. Uh, you've got a, your name on a few different books. They kind of look, is it the same book or is it the same book on sniping that's reorganized with illustrations? No, there's actually four different books um, that I've written on sniping, um, and obviously the latest book is 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 more related to PTSD. Okay, and how? Do, what's the link between uh, the the sniping and PTSD? Tell me about the latest book. Um, the latest book <clears throat> really came about as a result of one of the sort of challenges from friends of 22 press ups a day for 22 days to to support you know our family, um, and we were encouraged to kind of talk about problems we'd had to try and help, you know, our, my own friends from my own regiment. <clears throat> and as a result of that, a lot of people said, look, you, you need to put all this in a book. You've kind of been through more than most um, and you're still here. Um, and I, I discounted it. You know, you, you, you kind of think, mm, don't really think so. But then, um, I don't know, it just kept niggling away at me. And so sort of two years later, I, I wrote an introduction and the first chapter of, it was probably the largest trauma in my life. I sent it to a few friends, um, and the results convinced me I needed to write the book. So the book is really about it's about how I didn't end up taking my own life, even though I tried multiple times, um, <clears throat> and how I got to where I am now, which is stronger than I've ever been, um, and what get me what actually got me there. So I decided to to write the book. It's a book about really my failures it's not it's not a book about my career it's a book about how traumas from my childhood weren't addressed they then pretty much sculpted um, my life which made me a success in the military but it didn't make me the best dad in the world um and then when you throw ptsd on top of that it just runs right um so it was really a, a, a case of ownership of me to look back and say okay this is the mistakes I made and this is what happened as a result of those mistakes. Don't make those mistakes. You know, we are trained in the military that, you know, I really do understand the phrase stiff upper lip. 
know, as far as the British are concerned, because it, that sums up the whole ethos of how we are trained, which is man up, get on with it, um, forget it, move on, which is great and has to be that way in the military. Once you come out, and that actually works against you because the civilian community don't live that way because failure for them doesn't include your death or somebody else's death. Ours did. Um, and you end up being an outcast, not intentionally, but you just end up feeling an outcast and something of a failure. So <clears throat> I wrote the book um, to say I couldn't have gone any lower, but I managed to get through it, so you can too. Um, and I want to raise the, the fact that it's okay not to be okay. Great cliche, but it sums it up. It's just not okay to quit. You know, you, you, you've just got to keep fighting. And the other thing that I suddenly noticed was the reason I think PTSD isn't getting the respect and the attention that, that it requires is because a majority of the world seem to think it's a military club. You know, and, you know, I actually had somebody say to me, well, I wouldn't say anything because it, it felt like stolen valor to me. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, I've never served. Okay, look, PTSD doesn't care if you've worn a uniform. It doesn't care who you are. Um, so I wanted to get across the fact that, yeah, the military suffer probably quicker than most because of the lives we lead. But if you're that cop who's just carried a teenager dead out of a car, if you're the firefighter who couldn't get to the child in the flames, you're a mother who's just buried a child, that's traumatic stress. And you will be affected as much as we are. So I, I wanted, and I picked the examples from my life to try and best explain to people this illness, and it is an illness, it's not a disorder. Uh, this illness can hit anybody. But like all illnesses, it can be survived and it can be treated. So the book is is not about my military career. Um, I, don't, I don't need to write a book about that. Um, this is about why I'm still alive and why I want to see 22 end in 22. Um, and obviously I came up with the cliche for, for the book of end 22 in 22 um, because it's about time we raise the profile and, and we've got to break this it's a military disease um, attitude. It, it isn't. It's a human disease. And many times I will refer to it as an injury because I believe that's more accurate. Yeah, you can oh, act- I, I call it throughout my book, I call it PTSI. Sure. Um, you know, I, I only ever say PTSD to get people to understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, myself as well. And it's not to because it's politically correct or woke or something like that yeah. uh, to, to, to call it a PTSI. It is an injury. Uh, you can yes. st- stick somebody in an MRI machine. They can see the neurological uh, differences. It's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. nope. <laughs> There's no question about it. There it is. And there are treatments. I mean, I've been lucky that uh, you know a doctor came forward with his team that have been working on PTSD for twenty years, and you know they're they're pushing stuff that's been accepted by the U.S. Air Force, etc., like Nucom, um, and they're showing all the different methods, like like deep medica- uh, med- meditation, and the fact that the brain can be reprogrammed, it can be fixed. Uh, it's just one you've got to own it and, and come forward and say, look, I need I need help which is extremely difficult, especially for, for first responders and military. It's just not how we're trained. Um, <clears throat> but it can be fixed. Uh, it's just we've got to get the world to realize, as I say, this isn't a military club. It isn't. 
it can happen to anybody and it's encoded in fear. Uh, people get the different types of traumas mixed up. Uh, the One of the reasons PTSD is so difficult to treat and to deal with is because it's encoded in fear. So it's um, it's your amygdala, your lizard brain being in hyperdrive. And that's mm-hmm. what makes such a mess. So for yourself, at what point did you, because it's really difficult to say that you need help, but it's also difficult to admit to yourself that you need help. At what no, point uh, with yourself did you realize, oh man, I think I got that PTSD thing. When did it uh, sort of strike on you that it, it might be worth looking at? Um, I think the first time it was pointed out to me was I lost a wife to, to suicide. Um, and I think that was the first time that friends of mine were saying, look, you need help. Um, I went I went to my doctor. My doctor said, look, you've, you've got you know, chronic depression and PTSD. You need to go you know, to a therapist and everything else. Well, at that stage, I was a fairly recently retired British Army Sergeant Major. And I don't need help <clears throat> was my attitude. <clears throat> I don't need help from somebody that's going to be <clears throat> caring for me for an hour um, or until I run out of money. So to me, that wasn't, that wasn't caring, didn't need it, shut down. And for best part of nine years, it just festered away inside me because I couldn't accept what was going on. And you know yourself from PTSD, one of the symptoms is it's almost like a, an alternative reality for you. You're, you're living in hypervigilance and, and fear. So what you're seeing isn't necessarily what the people around you are seeing. Um, and it wasn't until I sort of went to therapy and got, got treatment and looked back that I realized, one, how obnoxious I'd been to some people. Um, two, how, you know, how difficult I was. Um, and three, how angry I was when I, I really didn't think I was angry at all. And I really was. Um, but it wasn't until one of my marriage collapsed and, you know, my wife accused me of needing therapy that as a result of trying to save my marriage, I actually gave in and went to therapy and it was a, it was a shock. Um, I guess when I first went in, I still didn't believe it. <clears throat> and when the therapist asked me very first question, tell me the very first memory you have of your childhood. I remember my initial response was, what the hell has that got to do with saving my marriage? And then ended up in floods of tears. Um, but I, I went, I did what I was told. I, I immediately went to the first thing I could remember and it was traumatic and I'd buried it. And that and two others have pretty much shaped my life without me ever knowing. Um, and it wasn't until I went to a therapist and started to learn about who I was that I was able to reassess my actions and start to take ownership of it um, and realize I, I did need help. You know, I wasn't as tough as I thought I was and that it actually didn't make me weak. You know, I'll still fight anyone in the room. and doesn't bother me in the slightest. But mentally, I needed help. Um, and it was the fact that I couldn't watch I couldn't watch a TV commercial that was like somebody winning a race or somebody getting hurt without becoming tearful. Um, and there's me thinking, well, I guess I'm just a really nice guy. <laughs> um, but, but it isn't. That was pain trying to come out in me. Um, and I was suppressing it. And we... I don't blame the army for the way they train you. They have to train you the way they train you. You've got to believe you're invincible or you won't get up from behind that rock that's being hit by bullets. Um, But they spend months and months training you to be a soldier, two weeks to put you back into a civilian environment that doesn't understand you. 
doesn't even understand our sense of humour. I mean, one of the ways soldiers survive is to laugh at things that other people think are horrendous. That's not because we don't care. You know, soldiers are some of the most caring people I've ever met in my life. But it's that's how you compartmentalise it so that you can keep going. If you've just seen your friend blown apart um, or you've just come across you know, a lot of children that have been killed, etc. <clears throat> the only way you, you get past it is to find a way, and humour is generally the way. And you, you're not going to be laughing at the kids or anything. You usually rip into one of your friends to get past it. So when you become a civilian and your support structure, which is your friends in the army, you, you know, your brothers and sisters that are left and right of you, when that's taken away and you're on your own and you you get the reaction from a lot of civilians that there must be something wrong with you. You start to believe it, you know, especially if you've got PTSD lurking around in the back of your head. And to me, it's it became a darkness. That There was this dark place trying to pull me in all the time. And the more I felt like I didn't fit in in the civilian world, the further I ended up into the dark. So you do reach out to your friends. You do try and tell them, you're having a hard time, but you still have a problem admitting it because you feel weak. And then your friends respond in the only way they've ever been trained to respond. Man up. Ah, you'll be all right. Get on with it. You know, stop whining. You'll be fine tomorrow. Which they genuinely mean from from deep in their heart. But when you're on the other side, all you hear is, stop being weak. You know, stop boring me. And then you stop calling your friends because you now believe you've let them down and you end up even further in the dark to the point where I certainly reached a calmness. You know, suddenly there was almost this realisation and calmness that I was the problem. You know, that everyone was right. It was me. Everyone was saying it was me. It must be me. Um, I need to go. You know, and you've got the darkness whispering, you know, do it now while you've still got, you know, some sort of control over your honour and everything else. It's not honourable. That's just you being sucked into depression. Um, and I found it was like, when I got to those moments, and there were many, many moments like that, it was like spinning down a spiral. Um, and every bend I hit was a box to check. Okay, bank accounts are done. Kids are going to be fine. Mortgage is fine. Uh, dogs are going to be looked after. And every bend, I was picking up speed. And... If I'd ever hit the bottom, I would have pulled the trigger. But I think the reason I didn't, and I can't explain to you how many times I picked that gun up. Um, every time it was the tiniest little thing that broke my, my mindset and put another thought in my head was the brakes, was, was the thing that made me slow down. And it was something stupid like, at that stage I had two German Shepherds. Now I've got seven, as I mentioned before, um, but they would be sat right in front of me, both just absolutely staring at me. And one of the times I can remember stopping was looking at the young female who had this amazing look in her eyes for her entire life and thinking, what if I scare her when I pull the trigger? It's going to scare her, which seems a really ridiculous thing to be thinking, but that was enough to stop the spiral. Um, and it got me to another day. Uh, or I'd be thinking, remember, bearing in mind I'd suffered uh, a suicide, actually multiple suicides in my life, but I'd suddenly start thinking about 
I didn't want to ruin the officer's life who was going to come in that door. You know, male or female, I, I didn't want to ruin their life by what they find on the floor. I laid plastic out. I laid all my uniform out and everything. Everything was done. I left a note. And, and I laid the plastic out because I wanted to be easily cleaned up. I didn't want to ruin the house. I didn't want to do this. Um, and there was just that, that nagging doubt in my head. And, and every time, and I've explained it sort of in deeper um, or more examples in the book, something stopped that spiral. And I sat down with my therapist who asked me what was a very difficult question at first when, when she said, why did you survive? What were the points, what tips could you give somebody to say this is how I survived? And that was a lot of thinking. Um, <clears throat> and really I, I came up with the answers and then realized being a soldier, the easiest thing for me to do was to put it in an acronym. It's much easier to remember a word than it is multiple sentences. But I knew it had to be a word that one was used, that everybody would remember, and was easy to remember. And actually came out it came out as the word strong, because the word strong fitted all the reasons why I survived. Um, and, you know, the, the first one was stay in the fight. Don't give up. You know, you have to stay in the fight. You have to fight for your life uh, and not give in to any sort of darkness that's trying to take it from you. The second one was tell people, tell others. You know, you've got to get past that inbuilt shame you have of feeling like you're a failure and actually reach out to somebody and say, look, not joking, I need help. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm I'm doing. This isn't right. I need help. So tell others was was a big one. And then I put resist the darkness because it is a darkness. And I do believe in a God. But I don't necessarily believe in organized religion. Um, but there is a darkness. And for me, if the devil, if the devil's real, I think it, I think it's us. I think it's inside our heads. I think we can create an eternity of hell inside our own heads. Um, and it's a darkness. You know, you, the reason when you walk into your own house and it's dark, you immediately find the light switch is familiarity. You know, you, you've been there all the time. Well, PTSD puts you in a place where you're not familiar. You can't find the light switch as much as you're looking. Um, and, and people end up, because they won't tell people, stumbling further and further into the darkness and, until they can't find their way out. And that's usually when that calmness arrives and you go, you know what? Everyone's right. It's, it's got to be me. And, and there's just 22 a day is just veterans. How many teenagers, how many mothers who've lost children, how many police officers, firefighters are taking their own lives now? How much of an influence has this, this COVID had? You know, we're, we're pack animals. We, we need to be in a pack. That's why solitary confinement is such a, um, you know, punishment in jail is humans don't like being on their own. And you put yourself on your own. When you know yourself, one of the symptoms of PTSD is self-isolation. That's right. You, you put yourself off from everybody. And that is the worst. <laughs> you, oh, and they're off. <laughs> hey, what up? Um, sorry about that. That's they just right. heard the trash truck. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like being pulled in. Your darkness wants you on your own. 
it could do more damage to you when you're on your own. Um, own it was was the next one I, I, with the O on strong was own it, and, and it was that that was me saying when I realised when I took ownership of I wasn't right, and that other people were trying to warn me that I wasn't right. They didn't necessarily know it was PTSD. They were just telling me I was being a dick, you know, and and I was I wasn't the person I used to be. You'll own it. You've got to say, okay, if enough people are saying this to me, I really should go and get checked. I really should go and see a professional and ask. Well, you're lucky that you even had that. You know, I went to... Yeah, a lot of people were stuck on their own. I had 23 years without being diagnosed. 23 years. That's a long... Nine years, long enough. It's a long time. You need to write a book. It's a long time to go... uh, That's a long train wreck. And, And nobody, nobody told me. Because it presents in different ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it presents, uh, presents as um, you're the happy-go-lucky, jokey, high-energy person, like ridic- mm-hmm. ridiculous energy. It's uh, like a manic phase that never ends. It's there, There's different ways that it presents. So people will go, well, you're like the happiest guy ever, when really that's not it. It's just that your cup is so full that that's the frequency that you're vibrating at. All the time. I absolutely agree with that. And I think if you look at some of the major comedians in the world, um, you know, they appear to be the funniest, happiest people in the world. And the second that stage light turns off, they're broken. Yeah. Um, but they never, never tell anyone, never see, everyone sees it because they hide it. And I certainly did that. When I decided after my wife died that I wanted to join her, I remember thinking, everyone's going to be watching me. I have to present an image. So they all leave me alone. So I faked my life. I faked that I was over it. I was fine. I was getting back to being me again. And the second I came back through my house door and shut the door, I was broken. And I'd go straight downhill again. And then the following day, I'd have to, if I had to see somebody, I'd go straight into laughy, jokey Mark. Everything's fine. It wasn't. Um, and I did that for nine years. I don't know how you did it for 23. <laughs> I just, it's some achievement, sir. It is something. <laughs> but I didn't do it well, but I did it. The um, We tend to talk about the symptoms in broad terms, like I was in a dark place or um, battling the demons. But what did that actually look like with you? Like uh, when you said that you're angry, what did that actually look like? How did that present? To um, how to, I was snapping. Okay. Um, I, I didn't really take anyone else's opinions. Um, very short patience. No, you know, do it now or, or I'm being annoyed. Um, I was right. You were wrong. As I said, amazingly tearful about the slightest thing. Um, they're not, un- them being angry that people don't understand why I'm upset. Um, anger at other people. And I, I found because it, certainly after my wife died, I was angry at people, couples. I was angry at couples who were happy because I wasn't, you know, my partner had been taken away from me and I, I, I massively resented that. Um, so I would procrastinate way too much. Man, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll be fine. I'll do it later. I didn't have the energy to do anything. I didn't want to go hiking, walking, running or anything. I didn't want to do PT anymore. Um, I just wanted to sit down and watch movies. And I always default to war movies because that's where I feel comfortable. Um, 
And so it was just, I was difficult to be around. And I was any person that couldn't see I was difficult to be around. I mean, if there was, I would either be inappropriate or I would personally chest poke people to start arguments um, because I wanted to argue. And I think that was just me trying to get all that pent-up anger out of me. Well, argument is a type of connection. And you said earlier how isolation is a symptom of PTSD, and it is. Uh, it's also the cause of pain. We have pain. Disconnection gives us pain. And when you're in a fight with somebody, that's a great connection. It's not healthy, but it's a great no, connection. Healthy, and I've started a lot of fights. <laughs> yeah. I can't lie about that. I mean, every time me and a friend, Chris, would go out, we were both kind of suffering at the time. Um, We'd, we'd start fights with, with ourselves in a mirror if there was nobody else, um, or actually with each other. So, yeah, I, I get that. I've never really looked at it as a connection before, Mark, to be honest, but you're right. It, it is a way of of connecting with people, even if it's just through your fists. Well, it's see me, look at me, I'm here, I'm real. And if you're at the other end of my fist, there's no question that I'm real and you're real. And this is well, real. The other thing I've found is I wanted the pain. Yeah, oh, you know, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted someone to hurt me. Um, I, I tried to get in fights with Club Dorman, anybody that you think, mm, this isn't going to go well for me. But I guess people don't want to fight crazy. Um, so <laughs> it was actually quite difficult to, to get in a fight sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there was I – wanted, I wanted that pain to be real. I, I used to love, love the first punch that I'd eat. You know, like it would just wakes you up. All the endorphins that pour into your body is like, oh, that's the shit right there. Now it's on. That first punch that you get in the face is wonderful. I it is, and, used you know, to love I, it. I often see people when they say, you know, other people are at risk from, from PTSD sufferers. Uh, and you say, no. no, not really. Because one, we're looking for someone to inflict pain on us because we are hurting so bad. Um, and the only people that are really at risk from anyone suffering PTSD is that person suffering. That's right. Because ultimately getting punched is not enough. That doesn't ease your guilt, your pain. And you you ultimately end up in that calm place where you go, okay, I'm done. Um, I kind of understand how, when I was on my own, but with my dogs, how they could break the spiral. And that would make me... And I found even if there was just the tiniest thought outside of that spiral, that was enough time to let hope back in. That was enough time for me to start thinking about, well, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Um, and I remember saying to the dogs, all right, fine, you win. I'll do it tomorrow. I'm putting the gun back down. Um, now, I may have tried again a couple of hours in certain, certain points, but there was, there was always that one thing that made me think. So I kind of understand why some people take themselves off to a, a quiet wooded area or, or, or somewhere where they know they're not going to be interrupted because they know, I think that the darkness, them, whatever it is, something knows that if they're interrupted, they'll stop. And I think one of the things I'd like to do with this book is get all the symptoms out there. Say to the world, look, this is what you need to be looking for in your friends and your family. If they start showing these symptoms, you really need to talk to them. You really need to get somebody else to talk to them because most of them will hide it and they'll hide it alarmingly well. So let's talk um, about some of those symptoms. What are some of the most, um, the symptoms that you would expect the least? 
I think the one that took me by surprise, and I saw it in my wife, and I've obviously now realized I displayed the same thing, was all of a sudden one thing that you're massively passionate about, you lose all interest in. I mean, my wife loved horses. You know, we had her own horse. She was in the stables every day. And then she suddenly stopped. I'll go tomorrow. I'll go tomorrow. It'll be fine. I'll go tomorrow. Um, and I never, I never picked up on her. I knew she was having a hard time at work because she was being bullied, but I never picked up on that as being dangerous because I didn't know the symptoms of PTSD. I'd, I'd heard about it, but I'd not really paid any attention. Um, and I was as guilty as anybody else of thinking it was just a combat-related thing. So how could my wife have it? Now, she was a police officer, but I still thought it was uh, military. The other one, I guess, just lethargic all the time. You know, you just you don't want to do anything. You don't particularly want to leave the house at weekends. You can't be bothered to do this or do that. Um, irritability is another one. <clears throat> Snappy at people. You know, little things that really aren't relevant, you'll lose your temper over. Um, and it, it almost becomes like my way or highway because you're constantly chest-poking people and, you know, almost trying to get into arguments. Um, lack of sleep. I remember there was, I, I just couldn't sleep. No matter what I did at night, no matter what I took, couldn't sleep. Um, and it was like brain just doesn't shut down. You know, that there's no off switch and you're constantly um, hypervigilant about everything. And, and one of my fears from childhood was, was that I wasn't good enough. Um, and it, it came because I, I felt I wasn't good enough um, for my father, who was a soldier before me, and I thought my older brother was, was his favourite. Well, it wasn't until after my dad passed and then my brother got talking, my brother had exactly the same feeling because I was a soldier and I'd followed my dad into the army. So he thought I was the favourite. But it, it, from a very young age, probably around four, you know, probably about five or six, there was an incident that kind of scarred me. My dad was messing around. He just kicked me up the butt but in front of my family. Everyone laughed. Yeah, the shaming thing. And my hero, my dad, you know, had kind of rejected me. So... For me, I was never good enough, and I didn't realize I was carrying that for, you know, all of my life. Um, made me a phenomenal success in the Army because uh, nothing was ever enough. I had to keep, keep pushing further and further. But obviously in relationships, I'm hypervigilant looking for signs that I'm not good enough, that I'm, I'm going to be left. So I found myself going down so many rabbit holes. Um, what if, you know, what if I'm wrong? You know, is that... Is that a sign or is that a sign? And constantly looking for answers. So my brain just never shut down. Um, and I made my partners feel untrusted because I'd constantly be questioning, oh, where were you? Who's he? And that was all, all part of it. And whilst I had that sort of anxiety and that issue from childhood, PTSD where you're just thinking from the emotional part of your brain, let it run riot, um, absolutely run riot, where I was clearly difficult to live with. Understanding that it's me that's the asshole is mm -hmm. such a huge thing uh, in our peer support group. That's kind of the, the running joke. 
is realizing and being able to own it. And that's the, the O in strong is own it. I'm the asshole. You know, this is people right. reacting to me. It's me that's the odd duck, the square peg in the round hole. That's me. Uh, often you'll, you'll see on little comments on social media of people that are struggling, those civilians just don't get it. You know, they're, they're those slack jaw civvies. <laughs> it's like it's not them, man. Get it myself. Um, it's, yeah, it's not them. So have I. I've been the douchebag too. But no. it's, it's, it's not them, it's us. No, it's, um, it was a very difficult thing to sit there with a therapist and suddenly find out actually I wasn't Superman. Um, I was just a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think you, you can look at how the symptoms kind of roll into each other because you're, you're chest poking people because you want that connection. Um, and the, the argument's getting worse because you won't accept you're the problem and it just, and it just keeps going. It's a downhole. Now, it's a negative feedback short, loop. You get a short amount of satisfaction out of telling somebody it's their fault, not yours. You know, when you end up on your own again, it, it makes you 10 times worse because you, you're again thinking, is it me? You know, and, and there's a yet, that's a yes, no answer. I mean, it, it is you, but it isn't your fault. That's exactly um, the difference right there. And, and you've got to, you've got to learn that there is, there are ways to actually fix this. Um, that, you know, you can do, um, sorry, I just threw a pen at my dog. That's all right. <laughs> um, he was about to bark, so I was trying to put him off, but, um, it's just so difficult, especially if you're like military or your first responders, like police officers, et cetera, who have to be tough there. They have to make decisions that most people don't want to make. It is very difficult to then say to yourself, something's wrong with me. And understand that it doesn't make you weak, not in the sense that you think it does. It, it means you're ill. It's and admitting it's like getting pneumonia or something else. Is, yeah, you can't just keep doing every day what you've been doing. You've got to stop and you've got to treat it. It's not admitting that you're weak. It's it's understanding that you're vulnerable. We all are. You're vulnerable to a bullet. You're vulnerable to a landmine. You're vulnerable to getting run over by a tank. You know, uh, nobody is immune to these things, and PTSD is no different whatsoever. So we were going through that acronym, which I really like. So for strong, stay in the fight, tell others, resist the darkness, own it. What what does the N stand for? Oh, so N is never quit. Never quit. Um, I, I've had a poster. It's a, a poem that was written by uh, an anonymous poet that's called Never Quit, and I've had that my entire Army career. And it's just one of those things that when I struggle – I'll read that. I'll read that poem again. Um, and it's something that I do believe in, you know, don't quit. You, you have no idea how close you are to winning when, when you quit. Just, just keep going. If you get knocked down seven times, get up eight. Um, and I always said that if I ever got to a stage where I didn't want to get up, <clears throat> then I'd reach the end. But there's always been something inside me that just says, you know, stop it a puff, get up. <laughs> um, and, and you just get back up. Um, and the, the G was um, grow from it. You know, and I'm a great believer in you, you never lose. You, you either win or you learn. Um, and I found that every time I had a traumatic event, there was a gift in it somewhere. And, and people have kind of laughed at me and said, you know, I'm sorry, but where's the gift in that? <laughs> and you say, well, it's, 
it was a couple of years later that I realized it had made me a better man. You know, it, it made me reassess me and it made me look at the things that I was doing or maybe I could have done better. And it made me a better man. And I've got to the point in my life now where instead of when someone does something to hurt me, instead of like being mad at that person and, and you know, wanting revenge, I, I find myself now thinking, what pain are they in that they would have done that? You know, why would they do that to somebody? They must be in a really bad place. You know, and a lot of people it is because they're in a bad place. Some people are just assholes and that's just the way they are. Um, but a lot but, of people are actually carrying baggage that but, but they no, don't but, realize but, they're carrying. But nobody's just an asshole. Nobody. You're right. No. Everyone's got some issue as to why they're that way. I have really, really enjoyed listening to how you've put everything together because you are so incredibly self-aware now and you're able to see things so clearly in yourself, which puts you in a position where you can see others far more clearly. And that is the gift of healing. You cannot heal if you can't look in the mirror and go, I'm the asshole here. That's the hardest part. That's the hardest part. Because once you get to that, once you get to that point, then your self-awareness, because try to tell somebody that they, they're lacking self-awareness. They'll smack you. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm self-aware. Who you ta- I know who I am. Nope. Yep. You don't. And the thing is, if somebody's being a jerk, hurt people, hurt people. That's, I know I'm quoting, I'm quoting, I'm quoting Wayne Dyer, but he's probably quoting somebody else. Uh, rest in peace, Wayne. But, um, it's true. Hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. And the way that you've described your own journey really paints that picture so beautifully, which is why the people that are the most difficult to be empathetic and kind to are the ones that need it the most. I absolutely agree. I mean, I didn't realize until I got to this stage where I can look in the mirror now and I actually quite like the person looking back. Um, I didn't realize until that point how for years I didn't like that person. You know, I had this feeling of, I knew who I wanted to be, but I just couldn't relax enough to be that person. You know, I was worried about what everybody thought. I was worried about what I was supposed to have achieved. And I was, I was worried about all the things that really weren't important, you know, new cars, etc. And then I realized it's people, not possessions that are the most valuable thing on this planet. And everybody is carrying something they need a hand with. Um, you know, and I guess it was, there's so many memes out there now about helping people. That, that must have been one of the things that said to me, okay, I, I do need to write this book. Um, you know, and I read one that said, you know, the only time you should ever look down on somebody is when you're trying to pull them back up. So true. Um, I saw one a couple of weeks ago that said, if you don't address the issues of your childhood, your relationships will. I'm a living proof of that. Yeah, um, a fact. and I realized that I did hurt the people closest to me. I didn't mean to, I tried not to. I remember consciously several times in my head saying, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. Oh, I said it. Um, and it was either mean, hurtful or unnecessary, but I, this anger in me just had this overriding drive for me to lash out. Well, anger is the guard dog is sad, right? It, the anger is a secondary emotion. It's mm-hmm. um, it's really protecting self-loathing, um, oh, shame. I, I felt like a, I couldn't tell you how much of a failure I felt because my wife 
thought she had no other option but to take her life instead of talking to me. Um, you know, and so for years, I self-assessed me. Now, there were things I could have done better, but there was nothing I could have done to stop that. That was that was her issues, and I found out after the event they'd been there for quite some time um, that I didn't know about, even, like, in her youth. So, but it, but it does make you self-assess, and, you know, for years I just felt like the biggest failure on the planet as a man. You know, I, I must be the most unattractive man in the world. I must be the weakest man in the world. And I hated me. Uh, and I hid it behind being overly loud, taking control of, you know, conversations, being this party man that I really wasn't, um, or just starting to fight with anybody who looked at me, trying to prove really to me that I wasn't weak. You know, I was I was tough. And you suddenly get to the point where you go, no, I'm, I'm still tough. I'm, yeah, as I say, I'm not scared of anyone. That doesn't... That doesn't make me strong. No. It's inside that, that, that I was not right. And it, it wasn't weakness. It was an illness. Um, and, you know, because you're not bleeding out the ears or you're not bleeding out your eyes, most people would discount it. Uh, you're, you're just trying to get a day off work. or yeah, well, It okay. creates the negative well, feedback loop. Uh, you're being a dick, so you're pushing people away. And when people are being pushed away – you know, they're, they're like they're, they're they're leaving and just going. Well, that guy's a dick. And the more you tell somebody that they're an asshole, the more the more they act like an asshole. You know, yeah. and it, it's this terrible negative feedback loop, which is why the only cure is to realize it's like, oh, that person's actually hurting. You know, and, and people don't understand if somebody is say arrogant and overly confident and telling you how they're better than everybody else. That's because yeah, that's the, that, that's the opposite of how they actually feel. Because no, that's true. I mean, that was my defense. I would challenge anybody. Um, I'd, I'd constantly push to make sure I was better than that person in a sort of competitive mode. Yeah, but it doesn't make me a better person than anybody else. If I can run faster than you, or, or if I can shoot better than you, it doesn't make me a better person than you. Um, because I'm sure the other person got multiple skills that they wipe the floor with me on. It doesn't make them better than me. I think what makes a good person is doing the right thing. You know, and I've always had this drive to do the right thing. I have failed on multiple occasions, but we always know what the right thing is. It's just sometimes we, we don't want to do it because it may run against what our friends are saying or what society says, and you want to be part of the family. You want to be part of the club. So knowing it's wrong, you still go ahead and do it because you just want to be part of the in crowd. Um, so a better person is to me is the person that just says, Hmm, that's not right. I'm not going to do that. Well, you can't be in our gang. Well, I don't want to be in your gang. If that's what you're going to do, I don't want to be in it. Um, that's strength. The self-love. The moral courage just to be the person you actually are. Bingo. Strength. That, I was just about to say that. And the person that you actually are, they're really... Everybody is a decent person, everybody in the world. And people are going, that's not true. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And when somebody is um, acting like a jerk or um, is just unsavory to be around, they are out of alignment with their true self. And that's the pain. That's the disconnection. Being connected to yourself means being aligned to your true self to being the real you, which is kind, compassionate, decent, empathetic. That's everybody. 
So the further you are from that, right. the further you are from that, the more you'll be perceived as uh, somebody that you don't want to be around. And the more that you'll look in the mirror and not like that person, because that's not you. If you, if you have all these behaviors, addiction uh, of any sort, um, if, if you're, if you're gruff, that you're not being you. That's why you're gruff. Uh, and I found that I was that. I mean, I remember a part of my sort of plan um, to join my wife was it was to lie and create this false me for, for my friends, etc. but also, also to push people away. You know, I, I'd planned to be obnoxious. I, I planned to push people away because in my head I was thinking, well, it's easier for me to, to finish my plan because if I'm, if everyone leaves me alone, I'm good. And the other part of it was I remember thinking it's going to be easier on them. You know, if they hate me um, when I take my life, then there's a good chance they're going to go good riddance to prick anyway. Uh, and that was really what I was trying to achieve. In, in a bizarre way, I was trying to set it up so that I I relieve them part of the pain that I went through when I lost my wife. And it's, it just sounds crazy, but there's also a logic to it. <laughs> um, if you look at it, the, the good part of me was like I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want them to feel the way I felt. But the, the, the PTSD side of me had a, a plan. And I was going to follow that plan as wrong as it was. And, you know, you still don't, I mean, I still have days where, you know, I can find myself in floods of tears with no real warning. And I've, I agree with what you said earlier. That, to me, that is just cups full. It's starting to overflow, time to empty the cup. And my, my advice to everybody is that's cry. You know, if and we all say, oh, men don't cry. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> you have to process. Have... If you don't process it, if you don't face the feelings, and if you don't process them, they bottle up and they mastocize. They turn into actual cancer. Like, yep. <laughs> this is show, like people do die of cancer nice because, because of yeah. trauma. Stress cancer. Absolutely. And, and to me, it's like if somebody, if another guy laughs at me and thinks I'm weak because I'm crying, I'll show you I'm not weak. I'll beat the crap out of you <laughs> while I'm still in tears. Um, so it doesn't make uh, you weak to cry. Yeah. It's And I found that instead of trying to hold it in, I kind of flipped that coin, and then I would just sob until I couldn't cry anymore. And I felt better. Afterwards, I felt it felt like getting up. It helps and to empty the cup. I realized that when it happened again, Okay, I'm, I'm full of stress. It's got to go. Yeah. So even now, I mean, I'll come home from work some days, and for no apparent reason, I end up sobbing my heart out. I just um, I, I just, feel better after it. I just did a massive dose of mushrooms on Thursday. Uh, I don't do them very often. It's every few years, but uh, I needed to empty that fucking cup. <laughs> and that, that. that's one of the ways that uh, it works out. Uh, for me anyway, uh, psilocybin mushrooms really seem to help, but you have to feel your feelings. I've, I've seen, uh, uh, posts from other veterans is like, no, uh, we, we, we just leave that alone. We just, you know, that that's buried, leave it buried, uh, let dead dogs sleep and dogs lie. That dog ain't sleeping. You think it's sleeping. It's <laughs> not fucking laugh. sleeping. <laughs> I'll make you laugh with this one on, on the back of that. Um, a very good friend of mine, um, Andy, 
Uh, I've known Andy since since I lost my wife, and he's he's turned out to be one of the most amazing friends I've ever had. Well, Andy knows I still have trouble sleeping, so he bought me a little packet of edibles, just little gummies that were, were edibles. And I guess, I guess being the soldier in me, I still find it very difficult, whether it's legal or not, to, to take anything. Yeah, uh, They were on my side. Uh, and then I came home and there was a box on the floor that the dogs had got and it was all kind of torn open. And I was thinking, what is that? And, and then I suddenly dawned on me it was the edibles. Um, so my dogs ate an entire box of edibles <laughs> while I was at work. Um, they were the happiest, mellow dogs they've ever been that night. <laughs> um they were like j- just like wandering around, happy whining, um, and just chilling out with dad. Everybody wanted to be cuddled all night. Um, so after the initial panic, of, oh my god! Uh, oh my god, they, that's so good. They were, they were just like a bunch of chilled out furry hippies. Um, so yeah, I'm probably not going to do it again. But that was quite a funny night. And sadly, Andy's gift to me just didn't didn't get used except by the pups. Well, they maybe they needed it. <laughs> Oh, they're, they're, they're a handful, that's for sure. Um, but you know what? It's oh, God. I don't think there's a mistake that dog is God spelled backwards. And, you know, a lot of people have yeah. heard me say that. If there's ever an example of unconditional love on this planet, that's it. I mean, it's not a cat, for sure. I mean, is it, you don't see any homeless people with a cat, do you? <laughs> you know, the first thing that's going to leave you if you lose your house is the cat. It's gone next door. <laughs> you um, no longer have value to me. See you later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go the find somebody that great. can feed me. Yeah, the dogs think it's like the best thing ever because you, you don't leave them anymore. You're there with them 24-7. Um, and, you know, my dogs have been such an amazing help for me. You know, they, they know when you need a cuddle. They know, you know, when you're not you're not doing well. Um, and you can talk to them and they don't talk back. <laughs> so you could get anything off your chest with them and they, they don't judge. <laughs> so I would highly recommend dogs to anybody that's, it's having a hard time. And I really do understand why there are so many therapy dogs now. And so many people have realized that letting a dog into a hospital, taking a dog into a retirement home it is a good thing. I had the blessing uh, because of the show and because of my network. Um, I, I was able to join a friend of mine. She puts on equine therapy and Wow. Did I ever learn a lot? It was fantastic. Horses are big dogs. They've all big got the dogs. same. They've got their individual character. My, my horse used to sulk if I was late going to see him. He'd literally stand in the middle of the field and wouldn't come over. He'd just look at you and then look away. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're amazing with kids. Uh, just unbelievably uh, intuitive with, with children that need love. Yeah, there are so many healing modalities out there, and that's a big part of what this show is. Um you know, I have people on talking about the lived experience, uh, promoting any resources they're providing. When you put your experiences in a book format, that is a resource, you know, uh, it helps people connect. It's a form of peer support. Um, and the more people can connect to conversations like what we're having today, the more people are saved from, from suffering. You know, a lot of people, they, they do not have the strength at this moment, or the courage, rather, to reach out for help. But by tuning into the show and hearing these conversations, they go, oh, well, these guys are just laughing about it. Clearly, they know what I'm going through, because that sounds really familiar to me. And they talk about ther- therapy like it's it's no biggie. Well, yeah, it, it, it's just the thing that you do. It isn't. You know, but everyone thinks you're a loony if you go to a 
therapist. And, you know, I also pointed out in my book that I was sat there one day waiting to go in and I realized that the word therapist actually breaks down into the rapist. Oh. <laughs> um, there are a few times I came out of there feeling fairly violated and upset. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's tough um, work. You know what, it's, they're, they're almost like military interrogators. They they very carefully pull you into a corner where you you have to look at yourself and take ownership of it. A good there is, one. There is no I, I one mean, else it, to blame but you. You know, and um, if you don't get a good one, uh, keep looking. They're not all the same. They're as diverse as it gets. No, they're, they're really not. And one thing I did was I went to I went to two therapists on exact on the same day because I wanted to see if they both came to the same conclusion about where I was. And I also wanted to see which one I actually felt more connected to and then chose the one that I felt more connected to. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would echo that completely. Find a good one. If you don't feel comfortable with somebody, it's probably because it's the wrong one. Yeah. Um, the therapist I've, I've, I've gone to, and there were two different ones, um, I felt really, they really put me at ease. I, I felt at ease sitting talking to them. Uh, I didn't feel weak at, at any stage. And, there's yeah, and they, they teach you things like what your triggers are mm-hmm. and how they feel when they start to trigger so that you can recognize them. And I, I initially, when the, I got asked the question, okay, when you said that, where did you feel it in your body? I, I remember sitting there thinking, what? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and then they were like, okay, wh- what did you feel in your body when you said that? And then when you sit back and think about it, you think, actually, I can feel it. Um, and you kind of explain it and then they kind of explain it back and they teach you how to recognize that feeling, that trigger that's about to set you off um, and teach you how to stop it, how, how to calm it. And it can be writing, meditation, going for a run, you know, PT. There's a multitude of ways you can treat, you can self-treat yourself without spending a fortune. Um, and it is all about understanding the human brain, the human body, and how it warns you something's happening, but you just miss it because we are so blinkered to what our what our bodies can actually do. What, are, know, what are some of the what are some of the coping mechanisms that you use effectively, and where have you found healing? And actually, before you answer that, what is what is your perception of the difference between coping and healing? Um, for me, not coping was just not registering that I'd been triggered about something and just, you know, going back into dick mode, to, to be honest. Um, for me now, when I realize that something is triggering me, um, the ones that work the most for me are, are the breathing exercises, pretty much just deep breathing, filling your lungs, you know, and, and giving your body something else to focus on. Uh, meditation of all things actually worked really well for me. Um, Difficult with seven dogs to get peace and quiet, um, but that really helped. It helped to, to take myself to another place. You know, and I'm not talking about some utopia or something. Just break that mindset that was pulling me into back into the darkness. Um, music was another one for me. I, I I put on a song that I know always makes me feel better, um, or something that breaks your mood. You know, and I listen to just about all types of music. It depends on my mood, uh, but find something. Physical fitness, PT was another way, you know, to beast yourself. There's nothing to, better to take your mind off it when your body's hurting. 
Um, and I guess that goes back to what we were talking about, about getting into a fight. You know, you, you wanted pain. You wanted something that you could actually go, that's why I hurt. Because one of the things I found I struggled with is I couldn't work out why I hurt. You know, how do I stop this pain? Well, if somebody punches you in the jaw, you know how to stop that pain. You know, if, if somebody busts your nose, you, you know how to stop that pain. You know what you've got to do. But for mental pain, I didn't know what to do. And I found that the therapist gave me the answers to that. And that, and that was things like breathing exercises that they give you. Um, <clears throat> phrases to, to go back and read, little, little phrases that just change your mind. Meditation, um, you know, fitness, music. Um, and now I've been lucky enough to meet um, Dr. Kirthi Sunder, who him and his team have been working on PTSD for 20 years. Um, and they have various treatments, uh, one one called NUCOM, that the U.S. Air Force have now adopted um, because they worked out what you said earlier, the brain in layman's terms can be rewired. It, it can be fixed. Um, and NUCOM is is based on on meditation. You know, you've know, got the headset, you've got, you got a little sort of um, set, and it basically plays meditation to you and, and certain sort of tunes and notes, et cetera, that have been proven through studies to calm the brain and, and, and get it to move out of fight or flight. Um, and as, as soldiers, we lived our life in fight or flight because that's why they wanted us. You know, and it's difficult to shut that off when you, when you come back out into, into civilian life. Um, you know, you find amount of times that somebody argues with you and you go, well, do you want to take it outside? Uh, and the civilian's horrified that you would even think that was an option. Um, but that's been your option for the past 25 years. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, re- it's rewiring yourself. And, you know, <laughs> Dr. Sun has got this very big heart, um, uh, you know, and a very good man. And he's he certainly helped me. And he's helped me get the book out because he believes in, you know, that it can be treated. It's an illness. It's not a disorder. Uh, and I think disorder actually is half the problem. We've, we've got to remove that because people won't come forward because they don't want to have a disorder. <laughs> if you go, no, you're ill. It's just like having a cold, but a little bit, you know, but it's in your brain, not in your chest. Um, you, you throw disorder into it. Most people back off into the dark again. They don't want to, they don't want to come forward for that. Um, and as I said at the beginning, the other thing we have to break is everyone thinking that this is some sort of a military club. Yeah. Well, I've, not, I've never served, so I can't have PTSD. Yes, you can. You know, did you lose your house? Have you lost your job? You lost a child? You know, is a relationship broken up that you were super in love with somebody? That can all cause, you know, traumatic stress. You know, post means it happens after the event. It's got nothing to do with the military either. Um, anyone can get it. And, and I think if we can, and I guess this is the aim of the book for me, if I can raise the profile to how many people are suffering, even to the people that don't think they're suffering, and you nailed it when you said, when people listen to people like us talking and they go, well, hang on a minute, that that's to me. That sounds I familiar. <laughs> and, and the reason, there's a lot of things that have gone wrong in my life. The reason I chose the ones I chose to put in the book was because I wanted to reach the biggest spectrum audience as I possibly could for exactly that reason. And I went into great detail to explain how I felt, what I did, what other people did, um, the consequences of all of it. Because I want people to actually read it and say, maybe I'll need to go and check. 
or get checked because I'm doing that. Or that's what my wife told me I'm like. Maybe I should just go and, and, and get checked. And my simple answer is yes. You know, if you go there and the, and the doctor says, no, you, you don't have PTSD, you're, you're a little bit depressed and I'm going to do this for you, great. You haven't really lost anything, have you? But if you don't address it, you can lose your marriage, you can lose your family, you can lose your job, and ultimately you can lose your life. Um, and it doesn't give you any warning. You know, that collapse doesn't give you any warning when you start to get to that point where you believe you are the issue and that you really are a bad person and the world would be better without you. It's not that you don't admit you're ill. It is you because you're ill. You don't go down the ill road. You just go straight to the, they're right, I'm a bad person. The world's going to be better off without me road. And 22 a day just proves it. You know, if you look at the fact now we've lost more people to suicide than we've lost in combat in the last 15 years. By a lot. That's horrendous. And, and nobody's doing a damn thing about it because they think it's a military club. And I'd like to say for the audience, too, there's more than one path to suicide. Um, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, I've shared with the audience I attempted suicide in July. And I didn't think that that was possible. I didn't think it was going to happen. But what happened was um, the cup was too full, and I went into overload, and I had a disassociative experience, so like a psychotic break, where I just kind of broke from reality. And how my brain tricked me was, no, no, you're not going to kill yourself. That's ridiculous. Of course not. You just want to see what the inside of your wrist looks like, because that's, you know, that'd be an interesting experience to have. Wouldn't it feel nice, just that sting like a tattoo? And this is the tricks that my brain played on me. So they, because I had firewalls in place that never will I ever. And so my brain uh, found a way around it. It's like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to kill you. You're just going to open up your wrist and and enjoy that. Uh, It'll feel pretty neat. It'll be an experience. Don't you want to feel that experience? Yeah, I kind of do. And I went for it. And um, so there's more than one way to, to get there. And at what point, because uh, I've been asked this, at what point should somebody be concerned and say, okay, these suicidal thoughts, uh, I better go seek help? I know what I've given people as an answer, but uh, what, how would you answer that question? At what point are suicidal thoughts uh, at the point where I need help? When you, when you actually start having those thoughts and you're, it's not just a flash in the pan sort of thought, when you're actually sitting there kind of planning it, um, and you find yourself self-isolating, you have a problem. Um, and you really need to start reaching out to somebody. For me, if I think most people in their lives, if not everybody in their life, at some stage says, oh, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and it's it's almost, it's a throwaway comment like, like me saying to somebody, oh, you do that, I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you, I'm just going to punch you. It's just a phrase. But if you get to the stage of planning, as in planning what happens to other people afterwards, you're, if you're considering how it's going to be taken by certain people or you're putting something in order, even if it's just a thought, you, you need to go and get help because that isn't all. Um, this is an amazing world. There is so much to do in it. There is so much to live for that if you're planning to end it and there's no illness that's going to take your life away, you need to go and get help. 
because that's not good. One thing I haven't added in on the show um, about this as well is I believe, in, and it's reflected in a lot of different uh, world religions, but I believe that we are here on contract, that we have m- new, numerous lives, that we signed up for this life. And that, I agree. And that we were lucky to get it. Like, not everybody wins it. Um, but we drew the long straw, and here we are. And we chose to be here. So as part of that contract, if we, break, if we take our own life, it totally messes us up on, on the other side. Uh, and you have to come back uh, again anyway. It's a mulligan. Over again. It's a mulligan anyway. So there is no out. You know, you're just. I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree 100%. I think we choose the experiences we want to face in this life. Yeah. Um, and if we, if we don't, for argument's sake, pass that test, you come back and do it again. I mean, I remember the day we buried my father, and you know, I was walking a dog at the time, um, and thinking, "Why? You know, why did this happen?" Um, and there've been multiple times in my life when I've just kind of heard a voice in my head that clear as a bell that really wasn't me. Um, and I just finished asking myself, "Why?" Asking God, "Why?" And I still remember it to this day. It said, uh, "You know." The world is a school and everyone has a lesson to learn. When you learn your lesson, school will close and you'll come home. And that was an amazingly calming moment for me. Um, it didn't take away the upset of actually burying my father, but it calmed me in that moment and made, made me realize that maybe there's a reason for everything. Um, so I know a lot of people don't believe in sort of reincarnation, but I actually agree completely with you. I think we come back multiple times. Um, and I think if you don't learn the lesson you're here to learn, you come back and do it again. I believe it. And never it, quit. Keep going and get it done. And it's uh, it's a message that's been given to me so many times, and I believe it's true. The um, people that have had some super-duper ayahuasca experiences and have actually been able to go to the midpoint between this world and the next, and um, they are told the same thing. There was a group of soldiers, um, and I'm going to have Kelsey Sharon on at the end of uh, the month, and she, she, or at the end of this week, and she shared her experience. But um, she, she's like, hey, where's this other guy? Said, well, he killed himself, so he's not allowed to be here. He broke the contract. You know, uh, we all died in battle, so we get to be here. But uh, he's, 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 yeah, I think it's, he's got a as mulligan. I said, there's there's a, a gift or a guide in all of it. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly when, when my wife sort of um, had, had shot herself, it took just, just over 12 minutes for the paramedics to arrive. It's just around the corner of my house. And I remember being super angry about that. And for probably two, three years after her death, you know, bemoaning the fact that they took 12 minutes. If they'd got there in time, maybe they could have saved her. Now, the injuries that she caused herself, there was, there was no way she was going to survive. But at the time, you kind of grasping onto anything as to why it happened and why you couldn't save her. Well, I was moaning about it one day, probably two, three years after the event. And again, I kind of heard a voice in my head that just said it was a gift to the point that that actually stopped my conversation. Uh, and I remember thinking, gift? Where the, where the hell is gift in in what happened and then being taken 12 minutes to get there? And I, I kind of 
went over it in my head probably for the next couple of days until it was kind of like an almost like a curtain raising moment um, in in my head and my mind's eye. And I suddenly realized who gets 12 minutes to say all the things that you should have said and you hadn't. I did. Um, They knew she was going. They knew there was nothing that was going to save her. But to try and ease my pain, I had 12 minutes to tell my wife everything I should have told her already. Um, It's a gift. You know, it was difficult. It's a difficult moment, but there was a gift in it. Um, And it did make me reassess me and to become a better person than I was before. So I think every tragedy is there to make you a better person. You know, you can stay in the place you were or you can learn from it. And by learning from it and becoming a little bit more self-aware and and understanding yourself better, means you can help more people. And the more people you can help, then the more people they can help. And I think ultimately that's a way to become, maybe we could earn the title mankind. I don't think we've earned the kind bit yet. Um, (laughs) Working on it. Maybe that's a way of getting there. Well, I believe we're also in the time of the Great Awakening. Yeah, I I believe this. It's a term that also has come to me in strength, and where we're realizing that we're all one. You know, there there is no separation. We're all we're all we're all connected. And, yeah, I agree. And I believe that that realization and it's going to be a difficult birth process. It's going to be a little painful, but uh, I believe that's happening right now. In like right now. <laughs> And, and, and there go the dogs. Well, that's a perfect cue. I was going to put a pin in it anyway. Uh, but Mark, thank you so much. Uh, leave the audience. No, I'm you have me on. I mean, it means a lot for you to help me sort of get this word out. And I know you, you do a great job. Um, I'm just hoping to help you guys from now on. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, what now you have four books. What's the name of the most recent book that we've been talking about? The book that's coming out now is called Out Dance the Devil. Out Dance the Devil. I don't know. That just sort of came to me while I was sitting there trying to think of titles. And it just, my marketing team said that just sums your character up. That's, that's the title. Well, that's beautiful because the book I'm writing right now is called the devil, you know, Ah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Maybe we can get the word out there and get people to realize that um, it's okay not to be okay and come forward and ask for help. It is okay. Well, sir, please stay on the line. Thank you so much for being with me today. No, thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure to speak to you. All right. Please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers, 
visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.